as we begin our time in God's Word this morning, think with me about the following timeline of Abraham's life. As we've been reading through these chapters, recent chapters in Genesis, think about this. The first time that we meet Abraham in Genesis chapter 11, his name is still Abram, right? Abram. Acts chapter 7 verse 2 in the New Testament tells us that God appeared to him while living in the city of Ur in Mesopotamia. This is 4,000 plus years ago. And Joshua 24.14 points to the fact that there he served other gods up to the point before God appeared to him. So this is when God called him to go to a new land, the land of Canaan, as we read about in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 12. When Abram finally makes that journey into Canaan, he is 75 years old. At that age... He must have wondered about his name, which means exalted father. Why would he wonder about that? Because chapter 11, verse 30 confirms that Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren. She had no child. 75 years old, Abraham was. She is 65 and they are childless. But God's promise to Abram is clear in Genesis 12 too. Take a look. And I will make of you a great nation. God is telling this to the childless Abraham, isn't he? I will make of you a great nation. Again, as Abram obeys God and travels deeper into this new land in Genesis 12, God confirms his word. Chapter 12, verse 7. To your offspring, I will give this land. To your offspring. The promise of offspring is repeated in chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. And when we arrive at chapter 15, even though it isn't clear how much time has elapsed, the issue of offspring of children is still pressing. When God commends Abraham... And assures him of reward. What's Abraham's first concern? It's this. Chapter 15 verse 2. Oh Lord God. What will you give me? For I continue childless. Chapter 15 verse 3. Behold you have given me no offspring. Says Abram. But God again reassures him in 15.4. Take a look. He says. Your very own son shall be your heir. This man, this servant, will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. But 11 years after God's original call and his promise, Sarai is still barren. So instead of continuing to wait on God, what do Sarai and Abraham do? Abram do? They, they try to move forward in their own way, their own plan. They try to produce an heir using Sarai's servant girl, Hagar. The result is that when Abraham is 86 years old, he becomes the father of Ishmael. In chapter 17, we fast forward another 13 years and discover that as a couple, Abram, now called Abraham, and his wife, now called Sarah, are still childless. So for 89 years of her life and 99 years of his life, they have been unable to have children. 
But in chapter 17, verse 16, God reassures Abraham that he will give him a son through Sarah. What is Abraham's response? Chapter 17, verse 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. No, 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 no. That Ishmael might live before you. Take a look. Verse 19. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And so for the very so and so the very next year again this is 25 years after God's first promise his call to Abraham 25 years later Sarah gives birth to Isaac their child a child for whom they have waited decades. A child of promise. A child who not only represents God's faithfulness, but who carries with him the covenant blessings, right? A child who will be the fountainhead of a great nation and the hope of divine blessing for all the families of the earth as the covenant detailed. A promised child whose descendants will occupy a promised land. Staggering, right? Twenty-five years, God's promises coming to pass finally. Now, with that stage set, keeping Abraham's story in mind as we've just surveyed it, look with me at Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. Genesis 22, 1 through 14. This is what we read beginning in verse 1. After these things, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Take your son and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. How how is this possible? What's happening here? How could God ask him to do such a thing? Maybe Abraham concluded that he had somehow misheard God. Maybe he was thinking that he had imagined the divine voice. No. No not what he was thinking look at verse 3 so abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey took two of his young men with him and his son isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place god had told him on the third day abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on his son Isaac 
that's a little clue for us as to how old Isaac was. Right? This is not a small amount of wood. This is a large amount of wood. Isaac carries it up on his back for this hike. Guessing he's probably 12, 13, 14 years of age at this point. Take the wood, laid it on his son Isaac. And he, Abraham, took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both, so they went both of them together. So, friends, it's clear from the text that Abraham heard God's command, this disturbing command, and he took it seriously, right? He took it seriously. Put yourself there. Can you even imagine the thoughts and feelings going through his head? And it wasn't simply, go do this now. Go do this in 10 minutes. Go do this at, at you know, the, the top of the hour. It was the next day. And so all night, he laid there thinking, struggling, anguishing. It doesn't tell us that, but we can, we can guess that was the case. How could it not be? Can you even imagine how these thoughts and feelings intensified as Abraham and his son left the servants behind and verse 6, they went both of them together. There they go, just the two of them now, closer and closer and closer to the point ahead that God would indicate. Listen to how the anguish must have deepened for Abraham as they walked together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? What would you be thinking if you were Abraham at this point? You'd check for that knife, right? Was it still at your side? Because it, it probably feels like it's in your heart instead. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. What did Abraham have in mind here when he said God will provide a lamb? What do you think? Did he believe that God in the end would substitute an animal? Or was he speaking figuratively? Was he speaking cryptically about Isaac as the lamb that God would provide? Either way, we know it did not change their course. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and he laid the wood in order and he bound Isaac his son and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood and then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Please notice, brothers and sisters, notice there is no indication here that Abraham will not do precisely what God has commanded him to do. As agonizing, as dreadful as it must have been, and yet there's relief in verse 11. Look with it. Look at it with me. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. 
And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. If you've ever seen the painting by Rembrandt depicting this scene, this is the moment right here, right? Etched forever by the master, right? Into this picture because it shows Abraham looking. What's he done? The knife is falling from his hand. He's just understood what's been said. It's got his attention now. The knife is falling from his hand as he lets, lets go of it in probably blessed relief. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord, Yahweh, will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of Yahweh, it shall be provided. Now, think with me about this story. I have no doubt you've heard this story before. Many of you, many, many times before you've heard this. Now, think with me, though. As I read through it, did it bother you? Did it bother you as I read through that narrative? It should have. But if so, why? Why did it bother you? Was it an emotional, an emotional issue when you heard it? That is, were you grieved by the idea that a boy would lose his life? And a father, his son. Maybe it was a moral issue that bothered you as you heard this story. Maybe you can think back when to, to when you heard it and read it for the very first time. Maybe it was a moral issue that bothered you. Maybe you were horrified that God would command a father to kill his own child. I'm not sure there's any way to escape the heaviness of such a command. But verses like Deuteronomy 32:39, 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 6, 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 7, those kinds of verses remind us that God as God gives life and takes life as he sees fit. That may bother you, but that's the truth, my friends. He is God. He is God. He is good and He is just in all of His ways. But He has given you life and He can take that life away. He is never wrong in doing so. Not once, ever. He is always in the right. No one, as we heard before in the prayer, can stay His hand and say, what are you doing? What have you done? This is God that we're talking about. 
God gives life and takes life as he sees fit. fit. Anyone, anywhere. And he can and does at times use human instruments to do that very thing. There are a multitude of places in the Old Testament that back that idea up. In fact, for example, based on New Testament text, any time that the death penalty has been carried out justly in our world, that's God ending a life through human instruments. They are accomplishing his will because they are his ministers, his servants, instituted by him, Romans 13. But Isaac was innocent, right? Why? Isaac was innocent. Well, friends, for sinners like us, every every breath that we take is a gift of grace. Every breath we take is a gift of grace, something we don't deserve since none of us are truly innocent. Listen, I don't think Abraham questioned God's character or prerogative in terms of life here. But I'm sure he was asking why. Why Isaac? Why now? Why me? Which of us would not be asking that question? Maybe this story just bothered you for logical reasons. Because as I read this morning in that timeline, this seems so radically at odds with everything God has been doing up to this point. God had made promises time and time again. Promises fulfilled in and to be fulfilled through this boy, Isaac. But now it seems like God is ready to flush all that down the toilet. Maybe it felt like erratic behavior as you read through this for the first time. Maybe it felt like erratic behavior from the one who is supposed to be our solid rock. The God who is in himself the ground of all existence. From one perspective, this command to this man could have seemed like nothing more than a cruel joke. Friends, you can be sure that at some level... Abraham wrestled with all of these issues. The emotional, the moral, the logical. And even more. Even more. How could he look his wife in the eye when he returned? What would the Hittites say when they found out he had killed his own son? What would they think of his God? What would they believe? You can be sure he wrestled with so many things. How did Abraham find his way then through all of this? How can we? I think the key is given to us, isn't it? The key to this in making sense of this story is provided by the writer to us. And it's provided, not surprisingly, in the very first verse in the opening words of the chapter. It's given to us there. Look at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. There it is. That's what the writer wants you to know about everything you're going to read after this. God was testing Abraham. God tested Abraham. That's not something Abraham knew at the time, but it is what the first readers were told when Genesis was finally put into writing. And it's something that we now know. So what exactly was being tested here? That's a good question. What was being tested here? Well, look back at verse 12. Take a look at verse 12. This is what God declared through his angel. 
do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. What does it mean to fear God? Generally a misunderstood idea. Here's what it means scripturally. It means to be overwhelmed as a human being by everything and anything that makes God God. That's what it means. It means to be overwhelmed as a human being by anything and everything that makes God God. It can mean reverence and awe before God. Or it can depend, it can mean dread and terror. It's all depending on the individual's position before God. They're standing before God. In Abraham's case, the command here clarifies the test. Did you see that? The command clarifies the test. Did he fear God more than he did losing Isaac? Did he fear God more than he did losing Isaac, his son? Was he in awe of God's plan above God himself? No. Did he believe God's will was higher than his own wants? Yes. Did he care more about what God was due than what he was due? Yes. Did he recognize the giver as far more precious than the gift? Yes. He did. The answer to all of these questions is proven by the passage, isn't it? By the story. But the fear of God, we know from, from God's word, is always fueled by faith. The fear of God is fueled by faith. And Abraham's faith, the, the very same faith mentioned in chapter 15, verse 6, where it says this, He believed Yahweh. He believed the Lord. And he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. That faith helped him believe that God would provide the lamb, verse 8. Just like he said, uh, God will provide the lamb. And that verse 5 says, he and Isaac would return to the servants after worshiping God. Did you notice that? We'll be back. Both of us, we'll be back, is the implication He believed that. This is his faith at work. Hadn't he himself with his very own ears sitting outside his tent heard God himself say in chapter 18 verse 13 is anything too hard for Yahweh? That's God's statement about himself, isn't it? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? What kind of faith did Abraham exemplify here? It was the kind of faith that believes God's command cannot change God's covenant. God's command cannot change God's covenant and that he can miraculously reconcile these when they seem to us to be radically at odds. He can bring those together when we don't understand when all seems lost, when all seems impossible. This is confirmed, this interpretation is confirmed for us by the New Testament. Take a look, if you would, on the screen. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. It says this, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, 
Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, this is everything we've just talked about, isn't it? Everything we talked about already this morning. He who had received the promises, that's Abraham, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This guy received these promises. He received 25 years after his initial call. This child who would bear forth the blessings, the promises, who would carry that covenant forward. And he is in the act of ready to slaughter his son because God commanded it. By faith he offered him up, says the writer of Hebrews. Verse 19, chapter 11 of Hebrews, he considered, in faith, right? He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, that inspired writer there helps us piece together all the clues that we have in our text. How could Abraham have done this? Well, he believed that even if he killed his son, God could raise him back to life. That's why he could say to his servants, we're coming back. We'll be back. This is the faith that we're talking about. Abraham's faith. Believer, follower of Christ. If that's you this morning, what should disturb you most about this story? are not all of the moral and theological questions it raises, but all the ways your faith and my faith are found wanting in light of it. Right? If you are honest with yourself and you see this and hear this story, your faith is exposed, isn't it? You see this kind of faith And our faith is found wanting. In Romans chapter 4 verse 12, what does Paul commend? Take a look on the screen. Paul commends, Romans 4 12, he commends those who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. Is that you? Right? Do you have faith like Abraham? I don't know how often you think about that, but regularly scripture points us back to Abraham. And says, hey, if you need a a model for faith, if you need to be inspired in terms of your faith, if you want a godly example par excellence of faith, look to Abraham. Do you want to walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had? I do. I hope that you do as well. What does this hard but powerful story in Genesis 22 tell us about Abraham's faith? It confirms how God-centered his faith really was. You see that? Now, that might sound like an overly obvious observation, right? God-centered faith. Isn't all faith God-centered? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that genuine faith means that we believe God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That he rewards those who seek him. But at times we know, again, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that rewards those who seek him, that rewards those who seek him reality, that can color our faith to the point of distortion. That part of it. What do I get out of this? What's the benefit to me in this? 
And that can, that can color our faith to the point of distortion. Here's what I mean. I mean, sometimes our faith becomes more about the what of our reward than the who of our trust. And we're called to guard ourselves against that by the example of Abraham in Genesis 22. When that's the case, things that don't make sense to us that God calls us to do, things that involve radical sacrifice, hard and heavy things become stumbling blocks for us rather than opportunities to glorify God. But as we've seen this morning, this God-centered faith presses through even the worst case scenarios of life that His will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's its desire. We've also seen that when God's word of command and His word of promise seem to be at odds, this God-centered faith recognizes that God is faithful and big enough to reconcile the two things. Do you believe that? Maybe this morning you find yourself in a very similar place. Maybe God has called you to something hard and heavy. Maybe he's called you to something gut-wrenching. And you're struggling to give over your Isaac this morning. Maybe he's called you to kill that dream that you've long held. Maybe he's called you to sacrifice something precious to you. Maybe he's called you to a radical kind of trust, but you're struggling this morning. You see, sometimes like Abraham, we saddle the donkey and we cut the wood in faith, but then we won't take the first step out. We say, this is as far as I'm going to go, Lord. Is this good enough? Or maybe we make the journey, but when we, but we turn back when we see that place from afar. Or maybe our faith takes us up the path towards that place, but Isaac's question deflates us and we turn around. Or maybe we make it to that place of sacrifice and we lay out the wood believing that God will relent, but we're not actually willing to bind our child and raise the knife. Brothers and sisters, Genesis 22 describes for us a faith that is intent on fully obeying God. Fully obeying God. No matter how hard, no matter how heavy, This is the kind of faith. Listen to what one New Testament passage emphasizes about this story. This is James chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Take a look. Was not our father, was not Abraham our father justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, this is Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. That verse was fulfilled in Genesis 22. Did you know that? That verse was fulfilled in Genesis 22. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Was Abraham really justified by his works? Well, no, not in the way the Apostle Paul usually uses that word. That's not what James is saying here. The point James is making is that Abraham's faith in a God, who the God who had called him, carried him, blessed him, humbled him, astounded him, and kept every single word to him. That faith was proven to be saving faith because it was clearly fruit-bearing faith. You see, saving faith is what James is arguing about here. He says earlier, brothers, can that kind of faith save you? Well, what kind of faith does save James? And he says, glad you asked. Let me give you some examples. Saving faith is fruit-bearing faith. There are plenty of people in this world who say they have saving faith, but there's no fruit. They're Faith produces nothing except the words that come out of their mouth. Saving faith is fruit-bearing faith as this demonstrates. That's why Genesis 22 can fulfill Genesis 15. You see, God's test took the faith declared in Genesis 15 and put it on display in Genesis 22. That's how you know about that faith. That's how you know the look the warp and the woof of that faith. That's how you understand what that faith does, what it's like. So when you read Genesis 15, 6, which is a key passage in all Scripture, right? Quoted again in the New Testament many times. When you look at it, you need to understand something about it. And to do that, you need to go to Genesis 22 to understand Genesis 15. Brothers and sisters, how is saving faith on display in your life this morning? How has he or how is he testing you that your faith might be manifested in your obedience? Though God said, now I know that you fear God. We know from other places in Genesis, that's a way God accommodates to us. God already knew, right? He already knew, just like when he said to Adam and Eve, where are you? Just like he said to Cain, where's your brother? Right? It was God who answered him. <laughs> Cain, your brother's blood is calling out to me from the ground. It's crying out to me from the ground. Genesis chapter 11. Let us go down and see this thing that has arisen to our ears. Genesis 19 or Genesis 18. We have come down to see the, up, the cry from Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a way God accommodates to help us understand his judicial process, right? That he's he's right and just. He confirms truly what is wrong and evil and deserves his judgments. He's doing that here. He's talking to Abraham in that way. He says, now I know that you fear God in verse 22. But in fact, this test was really for Abraham, wasn't it? This test was really for Abraham and for everyone who would later hear this story and that includes us. 
That includes you. You better believe, because Scripture tells us it's true, that when God called Abraham to do this very thing there 4,300 years ago, that he had you in mind sitting here in Buckeye, Arizona on November 6, 2022, in mind knowing that you would later hear the story. That's how the plan of God unfolds for the sake of His elect. Amen? All things written before are written down for us. Right? Romans chapter 15. They're written for us. 1 Corinthians talks about how us upon whom the end of the ages has come. These things have taken place for us. This story is for us. This morning, remember, believer, remember what Jesus has called you to sacrifice. Take a look. Luke 14, 26. It's here on the screen. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What? Wow, that's hard and heavy, isn't it? What does hate mean here? Hate doesn't mean what we think it means. It means letting go Letting go of in order to grasp Christ as first, right? In order to love Him first. I love and hate, love and hate. I love Christ first. I hate everything else. That is, it's nothing without Christ first. I can't put anything in that first position of love except Christ's. I can't put my parents. I can't put my children. I can't even put my own life in that first place of grasping Christ in love. Therefore, it's the opposite. I hate it. I let it go. Even even my own life. Now remember this. In regard to the words of Jesus, the words, uh, a command to sacrifice, just like Abraham received, in regard to these words of Jesus, Jesus will not, at the very last moment, stop this sacrifice, will He? He's not stopping this sacrifice. He, in fact, wants us to carry this through, all the way through. But we can trust that God will give us everything we need when we are willing to give up everything for Him. Do you you really believe that? Do you trust that God will provide for everything you need if you're willing to give up everything for Him? That's the call of the gospel. That's the call of Jesus. But how can we know that? How can we know that God will provide for us? Doesn't feel like it, right? It's not happening in my time, my timeline here. Things seem wrong. Things seem radically at odds when God says He loves me and I, I'm going through this. It's been 25 minutes. It's been 25 days. And Abraham, in that hall of faith, that great cloud of witnesses says, try 25 years. Try 25 years waiting on God. His timeline is not our timeline. He has a plan and you can trust Him. How can we know that? Because Abraham's faith here has already instructed us about this trust. Chapter 22, verse 8. God will Himself provide a lamb for the burnt offering. 
And how does the story end? Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And what truth was treasured by every subsequent generation of Israelites after that in light of this story? Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And it was, wasn't it? We have the New Testament. It was provided, wasn't it? Perfectly provided. Please hear this. Our deep desire and our earnest prayer should be for a faith like Abraham's. Amen? Our deep desire and our earnest prayer should be for a faith like Abraham's. But when we struggle, here's great news. When we struggle in doubt, when our faith is weak, we can rest assured that God remains near us and God remains for us. Amen? How can we rest assured? Why? Because God did provide for Himself the Lamb. And just like this story, this Lamb God provided was sacrificed in our place instead of us. Abraham was willing to give up his only son. God actually did. That's the gospel, isn't it? You know this verse. For God, it says, John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. There's the language from Genesis 22. His only Son, that whoever believed, whoever trusts in Him, should not perish but have eternal life. Do you have that saving faith in Jesus this morning, the perfect Lamb of God? Well, if you do, and I pray that you do, and talk to me if you're struggling with it, talk to me afterwards. If you do, how then has God tested that faith? How has he tested your faith? How is he testing that faith? And what will that test reveal? Would you do this? Would you take a few minutes this morning and talk to God about walking in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had? Would you talk to him about that? Pray. Ask him to help you fully believe that God's will is higher than your own wants. That you would care more about what God is due than what you're due. That you would each day recognize the giver as far more precious than any of his gifts. And like Abraham, that your faith would be fulfilled every day in radical, even costly obedience to God. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray that you would do all of that standing firm in Christ, standing firm in that place of faith. What is the name of that place? The Lord will provide. Amen? Amen.
Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we simply give you thanks for